Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. We're going to look at the first half of this passage. Revelation 13. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for just a wonderful time. It's so good to see men just continue to rise up in our congregation um, that love you, love to serve you, and uh, want to take on that responsibility of being a shepherd of your people. Lord, uh, it is a, it's a joyful thing to have, uh, have men like that in this church. It is an honor. I do pray that you would bless the remainder of our time Lord, as we focus upon your word, this particular passage of scripture, may we understand it and may we glean from it and put those things into practice. May we find the principles here, the universal, universal, universal principles, spiritual principles that we can apply to our own lives. May they have its impact in our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John has recorded for us this spiritual battle that started in heaven. It took place in heaven. And we've seen that in chapter 12, that Satan was thrown down out of heaven and confined to this earth for that period of time during the tribulation. Last time, we were introduced to Satan, and he is this dragon. He is a dragon who is wanting to kill this woman who is Israel. And particularly her child, which is Christ himself. And the Christ child was taken up to heaven. That is Jesus. And he was taken up to heaven. And the woman was preserved from the dragon by God himself. But we're introduced to Satan. And we understand that Satan plays a significant role in the tribulation period. And we need to understand a little bit about Satan. First of all, is that he is a spirit Uh, Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to what you may see in movies, um, he does not go around just moving objects at at will and picking up beds or uh, nightstands or, uh, you know, throwing things against. He, He doesn't move things. He is spirit. He can't do that. He doesn't spin little girls' heads around like we see in the movies. He is spirit. He is limited to his access and limited to his work with people. That's what he does. He is more interested in dealing with the way he works is dealing with falsehood, false teaching, uh, dealing with lies and deception and manipulation and propaganda. That's the way he works. And his goal is to be worshipped. That's what he wants particularly to be worshipped by God's own creation. I mean, that's a slap in the face to God, isn't it? To take, to capture God's creation that God has created and, and take them and make them worshippers of Himself. And that's what He wants. That's His goal. And to some extent, it's hard to believe, but to some extent, He's going to be successful. And it's going to be during that time of the, the tribulation. And in this passage, in chapter 13, what we will see today is we're introduced to two more men that are used by Satan. And theologians call this, these three, the unholy trinity. Satan, of course, himself being God the Father, 
And you have this false prophet, this false prophet that we'll look at next week. He would be the Holy Spirit. And then you have the Antichrist. And that's what we're going to look at today. And that is a counterfeit to Jesus Christ. Satan has his counterfeit. This unholy trinity. Now, we want to focus today on the Antichrist. And the Bible is not silent concerning the Antichrist. There's a lot that the Bible has said. But there's four elements you need to understand to kind of get these things in our own mind. We see, first of all, an Antichrist as a, as a group of people, those who vehemently oppose Christ. They are standing up against Christ. And we see that in 1 John. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3 with me. Just quickly, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18, it says this. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, what he's saying here, there's already people that Satan has in a place that hate Christ. They vehemently oppose Christ. They're Antichrist. We can understand that. We've seen those people. They distort They distort the doctrine of Christ sometimes. They would be your cults, your Mormons and your Jehovah's Witnesses. Those who twist the doctrine of Christ, Christology, to make a different God. They're essentially against Christ. Their teaching then, if you turn over to chapter 4, there's another element of the Antichrist. Chapter 4 and verse 3, he says this, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. This is the teaching that of, of Antichrist that is, again, vehemently opposed to Christ. And there's a teaching. And it was referred to in the passage read for us earlier as the mystery of lawlessness. It is uh, against Christ. Why are they so vehemently opposed to Christ? It's the spirit of Antichrist. There's another element, though, and that is Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 25, teaching about these people will come and pretend to be the Christ, the Messiah. And he says to to run, don't listen to them. And they'll say, they'll try to win a a hearing. And he says, don't listen to them. And this is going to be during the time of tribulation. But there's one that stands out. Throughout the whole teaching of Scripture, there's one man that you've seen. We start in Daniel, and we see throughout the whole, really, the the Scripture, there's one person that just stands out, and that is the man of uh, the Antichrist. It's a particular person. And he defies God himself to his face, even. Arrogant. And is empowered by Satan. Now, I want you to see this, so turn over in your Bible, Daniel chapter 7. This is the first place we see this, and I try to write some of these out for you. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel uh, is given this vision, this vision is of these world kingdoms to come. And one is like a a lion, one is like a bear, one is like a leopard. And the fourth one is just uh, almost indescribable, indescribably fierce. And out of that... That one, this Antichrist rises, and in verse 8, the, the end of verse 8, chapter 7, verse 8, he is, he is this little horn, of the, this horn coming out of the, the beast's head, 
He says, and this horn possesses eyes, the end of verse 8, possesses eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth uttering great boasting. Now that becomes a distinguishing characteristic of this man. Throughout history, there's no man like this that is just so arrogant to do these things. Verse 21, and we also see, it says, I kept looking and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Holy One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Now, this is the situation of the tribulation. At this, this Antichrist, he's waging war against the saints, these Holy Ones, God's people. And he, he almost overtakes them. He almost, it almost happens until what you have is Christ coming back and establishing his kingdom. And they are able to take possession of that kingdom. And you have this Antichrist figure in that. And then down in verse 25, he will speak about, he will speak out against the most holy and wear down the, the saints of the Holy One. And he will intend to make alterations in time and in law, and they will be given into his hands. He's going to have some authority. And for a time, times, and a half a time. Now, we look at this uh, last week or a couple weeks ago. Time is one year. Times is two years. And a half a time is a half a year. It's three and a half years. We've seen this before. Look at chapter 20, uh, chapter 9. Stay in Daniel, chapter 9. In verse 27, we see this man. He makes an agreement with Israel. He makes a covenant. And in the middle of that seven-year period of time, this covenant is broken with Israel. And he cannot be trusted And in chapter 11, it says in verse 36 that this king will do as he pleases and he will exalt himself and magnify himself above any gods and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods and he will prosper until the indignation, that's God's wrath, is finished for that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his father and for the desire of women. That's interesting. Nor will he show regard for any other gods, for he will magnify himself above all others, above them all. He is an arrogant place that puts himself in the the place of God and he is desiring of worship. Now, that's exactly what we saw in the passage that was read for us in 2 Thessalonians. In chapter 2, if you go back, this is consistent with what Paul teaches. Daniel is consistent with what Christ teaches, which is consistent with what Paul teaches as well. In in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 4, just just by way of reminder, this is the man who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat at the temple, or in the temple, displaying himself to to be God. That's the epitome of arrogance. Arrogant. And then, of course, then you go to book of Revelation. And we first see him in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7, where he is the one who kills the two witnesses. So you get an overview of this man. But when you come to chapter 13, you see a lot more of his character, what he is like. And, and that causes him to stand out even more from the rest of the men of, of history. But here's what I want us to see. 
Satan will use the Antichrist. He is going to be a pawn of Satan. He will use the Antichrist, Satan will, to have his day of world domination. And God will still, but God will still be ultimately in control and believers will still belong to Christ. Our, our eternity is secure. Now the question is, what about this Antichrist? What will he be like? That is answered for us in this passage. And what we see is just a, a general description of this Antichrist. Then we have some specifics, some, um, uh, some uh, distinguishing characteristics, and then we'll look at his destiny. Let's look at verse 1, chapter 13 and verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Oh, let's just stop right there. Again, we're introduced back to remember this dragon. Now, this was Satan, and he wages war against Israel. And God protects Israel. He, he uh, hides them out, and Satan cannot get to them. Um, in verse 17 of the previous chapter, chapter 12, verse 17, we see, so the dragon was enraged with the woman. He couldn't get to her, and he went off and, and waged war with the rest of her children. He couldn't kill her, so anyone that proclaimed the name of God he says, anyone that, that, that would keep the commandments of God and hold to his testimonies of Jesus Christ. He's gone out to kill them, wage war against them. He wants them dead, not just dead, but he wants to, to distort them, distort their faith. He wants their faith, ultimately. And he's standing, Satan is standing on the seashore. Now, some translations may say the word he or I, but it's best... To translate it, it's he, and it would be the dragon of verse 17. He is standing on the seashore, the sea of nations, and he's looking at this sea of nations, this dragon is, and up comes this beast. Then I saw, John says, then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were seven diadems, that are that's crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And this dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Now we see a description of this beast here. And it's kind of general description. There's five characteristics. First of all, he's a beast. It's a wild animal, vicious and savage. It's a vicious monster. It's a nightmare, grotesque, something that you would see in your own dreams, your nightmares. But it shows his strength and his viciousness. His head, seven heads, and that, just talking about his, his wisdom. He has horns of strength to attack and defend. And he has a crown. He has a certain amount of authority. Now, this is the same description that we see, or a similar description, in chapter 12 and verse 13, when it describes the dragon. Remember? The dragon is Satan. You see a family resemblance here. It's exactly what's happening. Family resemblance. He looks, he's very similar to Satan himself. And what you have here, and this is the scariest part, you have a man that is fully yielded over himself to Satan. That's scary, folks. He has seven heads. Seven heads. Let's look at this. If you turn over to chapter 17, we are given the interpretation of this. Chapter 17 and verse 9. It says this. 
Here is the, the mind, which was wisdom. The seven heads, here's the answer, here's your tidbits here for our interpretation, understanding of this. The seven heads are seven mountains. Now, mountains many times referred to kingdoms, uh, world empires, if you will, on which the woman sits. We'll look at that when we get to chapter 17. And they are seven kings. So these seven heads are seven kings that had gone before, these empires that had gone before. And what you see, this man's ancestry. He is the seventh of seven kingdoms. Probably seven world powers, if you will. Now this is very typical of prophetic teaching. Daniel did the same thing. When he looks ahead, he describes these nations, these world powers. Sometimes he describes them much like animals, animal characteristics. And what you would see, you would interpret this, these seven kingdoms that were before him, you would have uh, Egypt, and you would have Assyria and Babylon, and the Medo-Persian Empire, and then you'd have the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And out of that Roman Empire, which we're still in that Roman Empire today, kind of loosely speaking, that Roman Empire comes this Antichrist Empire. And he, of course, being the king. And what scholars said, that this is the final, the last great Gentile world power prior to Christ's return and establishing his forever kingdom. Here on this earth. That's a wonderful picture. This is the last one. He is the culmination of all of those kingdoms in one. And he has ten horns. Look at the passage. He has ten horns. Again, go back to chapter 17. And look at verse 12. It says, the ten horns which I saw, or which you saw, are ten kings. These are ten other kings who were not yet Received who had not yet received their kingdom. They're not in power yet. This is a little bit different structure, John says. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. This short period of time, they have this kingdom with the beast for one hour. And then here's what happened in verse 13. These have one purpose. They're all united. And they, have, they give their power and authority to the beast. So you have these ten kingdoms that yield up, yield up and consolidate and yield up their authority to one man. And you have Satan emerging. One man emerging as this dictator. And that's exactly what you say. You say, well, we don't see that today. No, we don't see ten kingdoms today. This is in the context of the tribulation. You have to remember. And what kicked off everything? It was the, the rapture of the church, I believe. The rapture of the church went up. You have millions of people disappearing. Disappearing. And, of course, that's going to cause panic and, and chaos, economic chaos and political chaos all over the globe. And you have natural disasters like no one has ever seen before. And you have, again, mass panic and mass confusion. And people are saying, who's going to take care of us? And who's going to organize this thing? And you have a reorganization. Let's do ten nations, ten kingdoms. That's why you don't see it today. It just hasn't happened. We haven't come to that point today. So we can't guess, well, who are the ten kingdoms? That kind of thing. We don't know. It's a restructuring, reorganization, essentially. But out of that comes one man, one Person, 
that becomes a world dictator. A one world government with one person. Unified politically, financially, militarily. All coming together. And that's what you see. This ten horns. They're coming together. One beast. One person. He also has characterized by blasphemous names. On these heads are blasphemous names. Now that was typical of the Roman Empire. It would be... Um, there would be divine names or divine titles that these emperors would would uh, take on. And uh, it would be dishonoring. It was blasphemous. Dishonoring to the true and living God. This shows his hatred for God. And then you also see him characterized by, by animal characteristic, animal-like characteristics. That's the same thing that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. The same kind of characteristics. Daniel was looking forward. He was looking ahead. And we, as we are looking ahead, but John is seeing it all and he's actually looking back. And we see these three animal characteristics. First of all, he is talking about essentially showing his military might. And he sees this, this leper, this someone who can conquer swiftly and speedily and be vicious. In history, we know that is Alexander the Great. And Daniel predicted that and he came. And then you see this bear who had stability and strength and it kind of lumbered along. That would be Medo-Persian Empire. And then you have the lion, the Babylonian Empire, was fierce and just consumed it all. He has these animal-like characteristics all combined into one nation, one unifying power, one empire. Uh, a, a, an anti-Christ empire, if you will. He has all power, and this power, by the way, is given to him by Satan. And, and he shares this throne with Satan. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. What you have then is one man rising to power out of chaos. Satan has a solution here, and all the focus is upon one person. Now listen, this is what is so amazing to me, is the world doesn't see a dragon. They don't see a a beast. No. Oh, not at all. And this person has answers. This person's going to help us. He's going to protect us. They're just thinking about their immediate needs. They're not thinking about truth at all. They're not thinking about truth. They're not thinking about good and evil. They're just, they're just selfish. They're just following their own nature. Let me show you. Let's go back to that first John passage, chapter four and verse three. It says this, first John chapter four, verse three it says, and let me start with verse two. By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ as come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already on the earth. The world has no discernment. They have no discernment. They don't discern. They've essentially just rejected Christ. And they don't, they don't articulate a doctrine of Christology. Oh, he's just another good man. He's just another person. And that is the discerning, that is the deciding point right there. What you do with Christ determines if you're going to have the right discernment or the wrong discernment. The world has no discernment. 
No discernment. They don't see a beast. They're not after truth. They're just after their own preservation, their own pleasure. They've rejected Christ. And in rejecting Christ, what did they do? They bought into a lie. Folks, that's exactly where we are today, isn't it? You have a world that just has no discernment. Just thinking about the immediate, their immediate needs. Not thinking about truth. Not thinking about eternity. They reject Christ and they buy into Satan's lies. And he is there and feeding these lies to them. But Christ is the starting point of wisdom. He is the starting point of discernment. And what you do with Christ determines a whole lot. Determines a whole lot. Let's go on. That's the general description. But there's three specific characteristics that he has. Distinguishing characteristics of the beast. Uh, First of all, we see that he was raised from the dead. Now that's pretty distinguishing, isn't it? I mean, who could say that? Not very many people. Look in verse 3. And I saw one of his heads, one of his heads, this dragon or this beast, one of his heads, as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound, it looked completely devastating to, to the point that he would have died. And this fatal wound was healed, says. And the whole earth was amazed. And following after Uh, And followed after the beast, they worshipped the dragon. Now, when you're worshipping the beast, essentially you're worshipping the dragon, which is Satan himself, because he says, he goes on to say, and cause he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war against him? We're on his side because he can protect us, and nobody can come against him. Even some foreign power outside this world. Who can come against him? Verse 5, there is given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authorities to act for 42 months was given to him. And And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. And that is those who dwell in heaven. Three characteristics. The first is that, like I said, he was raised from the dead. He was slain. There was something that happened. And we don't know a whole lot of detail. But if you look over just down to chapter, uh, down to verse 12, we see a little bit. The end of verse 12, he's talking about the beast whose fatal wound was healed. So this fatal wound was healed. Verse 14, the end of that, that verse, it says that the image of the beast who had the, the wound of the sword. And he came uh, has come to life. Wound of the sword. So apparently, there's some well-known public display here. Some, something, and, and he, was, he was wounded by a sword. We, there's no reason to not take that literally. And a, and a real person. And he's wounded. But he comes back to life. It's an amazing thing. Look over at chapter 17. Chapter 17. Because I want you to see the similarities here. Chapter 17 and verse 8. And he's talking about the beast. See the beast. That is he, that he was and is not and will come. Who was and is not and will come. He was there, but he, he was not. He, he was killed and he will come. Down to verse 11. 
the beast which was and is not. He is becoming known as the one who was and then was killed or was not and had this fatal blow, this death wound. At least it appears to be a a death wound. And he rises up. And then, of course, Satan has his counterfeits. And this sounds very much like who? Very much like Christ. Remember back in chapter 5 and verse 6, he was the lamb that was slain. And it appeared to be slain. He was standing, but he was he was slain. That is exactly what Satan is trying to do here. He's trying to counterfeit Christ. And they worship. And that's the amazing part, is they worship this guy. And in worshiping him, they're worshiping Satan. They say, who is like the beast? And who can wage war against him? Who can defeat him? Who can defend against him? They're in awe of him. He's deity. I mean, he can raise the dead. He's empowered by Satan. He is... Satan is getting exactly what he wants. Satan is being worshipped. This Antichrist is not, is not content with just high level of respect. No, he wants worship. He wants reverence. And it all is to go to him. That's pretty arrogant. His distinguished characteristics was that he was dead. Look at another one. He has a blasphemous mouth in verse 5. There was given to him a, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Verse 6, and he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those, as those who are in heaven. There's no repentance here. You have the chaos of, of everything that's going on on earth, uh, these natural disasters, supernatural disasters, all of these things going on, and this man is unfazed. He is not repentant. He is not broken before God. He is blasphemous. Blasphemous. Complete disregard for God and for truth in general. And he speaks out about it. He's not subtle. He's been given a mouth. The mouth exposes what's in the heart and he just speaks everything that's coming out and he's against, outraged against God. God's name, that name represents all that God is. His tabernacle, that's where God lives. And his people, that is his saints, even his, probably including his angels. And folks, this blasphemy is is kindling God's wrath. Look at chapter 19. Keep going back to the end of the book, kind of peeking to see what's happening. But in Revelation chapter 19, we give a glimpse here. Verse 20, and the beast was seized with him and the false prophet. At the end of that verse, it says, and these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The wrath of God is kindled against this guy and he is thrown alive into the lake of fire. The lake of fire. That's what his blasphemous words gets him. But there's one more distinguishing characteristic and that's at the end of verse 5. Look at this. And authority to... He was given this authority to act. For 42 months was given to him. His rule is limited. God is in control here. It is limited to these three and a half years, these 42 months, 1,260 days, this time, times, and and a half a time. 180 weeks, this unholy trinity as domination of the world for only three and a half years. Again, we see God's in control even in a time of chaos. 
Now let's think about this again. What do we see? This passage is so amazing to me to look at the people that are involved, to look at the masses of the earth, how they respond. And they don't flee from this dragon. They don't fear this dragon. They worship this dragon. It's amazing to me. And they're worshiping. And worshiping the dragon, they're worshiping Satan himself. Folks, this is the great deception. They have rejected Christ, who actually raised from the dead. And they're accepting Satan's lies of this man who is supposedly raised from the dead. Let me show you what's really going on here. Turn back to the passage that was read for us in 2 Thessalonians. Now this will open up your eyes a little bit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. We're going to start at verse 10. And with all of the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now, therein lies the problem. They rejected the truth, the love of the truth. They rejected that. They did not love truth. No discernment there. Just anything, anything goes. Just protect me. They were not saved. Verse 11, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. So they rejected the truth that they knew. God gives them a deluding influence. And they accept all this foolishness. Hollywood antics, probably. Verse 12, in order, and here's the reason, in order that they may be judged. This, what is going on here, is God's judgment. God's judgment. God's judgment upon man is just letting man do what comes naturally. It's natural for man to just stay in his wickedness, to reject the truth and ultimately follow Satan and ultimately worship Satan. It's just part of God's judgment. Showing the heart of man. Showing what man is, is capable of doing. Showing how base man is. It says, goes on, who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That's the bottom line. I want to hold on to my own rebellion, my own wickedness against God. They reject the truth and they buy into a lie. And that's what you see. That's what's going on. And folks, we see that still going on today. Maybe not to this degree, not to the same degree, but we see ultimately worship of Satan Rejection of the truth, hanging on and taking pleasure in their own. Maybe the maybe it's starting now, huh? Was that was that a trumpet? Or... You took pleasure in the truth. Took pleasure in the truth. They did not take pleasure in the truth. They rejected the truth. Took pleasure in their own wickedness, and they held to that. They held to that, folks. That's exactly what we see today. It's exactly what we see today. We, we go before the, Lord, the world then pleading, helping them, hoping that they would see, hoping that, that while they have the opportunity to accept the truth, and, and yet we know that they, many times that they want, they won't. They're on this broad road. The masses are just, just going right down following Satan. And sin is so blinding. And they yield to it. They yield to it. Let's move on. We've got one more point. And that's the destiny of this Antichrist. I want you to see this. 
you need to see the, the flow of the passage and where John goes, where John takes this. Essentially, they're just pawns in the hands of God. If you turn back to Revelation chapter 13, you have verse 7. It was also given to him to make war against the saints and to overcome them. To overcome them. God gave them, God allowed him to have that ability, that power, that kind of power. Look at the extent of his power. And he has authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. It was given to him. He had all of this world power. And he attacks the saints That's the first people that you see and I want you to take notice of. Look at the second group of people in verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship all of those earth dwellers. Now that, remember, I keep bringing that up. All who dwell on the earth, that's the technical term within the book of Revelation of those unsaved, those earth dwellers. They're, They're confined essentially to this earth. They don't look above the clouds. They don't look to God at all. All who dwell upon the earth will worship Him. Will worship Him. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. They reject Christ because their names are not written down before the foundation of the world. That's what's happening. Their names were not written down. They were born into this world with a sinful nature. Because of that sinful nature, they rebel against God. They reject truth. They hold on to their wickedness. And God continues to blind them. Sin continues to blind them. And they ultimately worship Satan. Folks, that's what we see. By the way, this Antichrist, he makes war with the first group. These righteous ones. These saints. And he makes war with them. He wants their faith. He can kill them. He has that authority and he will. He will kill many. But he wants their faith. He wants to to change their faith. He wants them to rebel against God. But that's what they hang on to. And that's the point. Every tribe and tongue. And he slaughters them. And we see that in chapter 6 and chapter 7, chapter 11. We see the slaughter of innocent victims from this Antichrist. And he overcomes the saints. Ultimately, he kills them. Many will be destroyed. Some of them won't. Many of them will be. But it's their nature to hang on. Their nature to hold on to their faith. They hang on to truth. They hang on to their faith and righteousness. The nature of the unbeliever is to hang on to their sinfulness. Hang on to their false doctrine. Reject the truth. And herein lies the point. Look at verse 9. And here's, here's, he's kind of summing it up. He brings it to a principle. If anyone has ears, let him hear. It's, it's uh, said uh, 15 times in the New Testament. If you have ears, hear what I'm saying. Listen up, he's saying. If anyone is destined to captivity, to captivity, he goes. That's the first one. If you're destined to captivity, to captivity, there's a certain element of of God's providence. This is just the way it is. If you're destined to captivity, well, to captivity you go. That's probably a statement from the early church back in that day. Here's statement number two. If anyone kills with a sword, he will be killed. There's just a destiny to things. He, He must be killed, again, with the sword. 
There's a reaping, sowing consequence here. There's a practical element of these things. And notice that Genesis chapter 9 is still in place. If you kill, your life is to be killed as well. Your life is to be taken as well. And that's, that's the point. There's a destiny. You do this, there's certain consequences to, to that action. And God has predestined the whole thing. And therein lies the point. Look at the next little phrase. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. That is so important. Such an important little phrase. The perseverance, the, the steadfastness of the saints. The saints are the holy ones. Those who have a nature that God has changed, that God has worked in. And the key element there is their faith. Even through the persecution of the tribulation period, even though Satan is on top and it looks the worst of the worst, it can't get any worse. You have all of these demons flooding the earth, coming out of the abyss, and everything is in chaos. And this one man, there's only one person that has the answer, and it seems like Satan. And here you've got these people, mere men, mere women, Mere people that stand up and oppose this, knowing that their life will be taken. Why? It's because of their faith. That's the point. That's the point. These believers that come through this, even though that He's being given authority to overcome these saints, you know what? Many of them stand. Many of them will be persecuted. Many of them will be killed. Why? Because they hang on to their faith. They have a faith that will not die. They have a faith that will not quit. A faith that will not quit. So ultimately, what you see here is two natures. The nature, first nature is a sinful nature. It has not been changed. It's just the way it, things are. We, we come out of the wound just like this. And this is just the way I am. And So we reject truth. We love truth. Iniquity and our own sinfulness and wickedness. We follow Satan and we ultimately worship Satan. But then you have a different nature. A nature that has been changed by God. That loves God. That is righteous. Loves righteousness. It's a nature that has a faith to it. A faith in God despite the circumstances. It's amazing to me to see one man that's been given over to Satan... One man that, that just says, here's my soul, Satan, do with me what you want. But here's what's amazing. You have a whole group of people, you have other people here that say, that are completely given over to God. And it's their faith, their faith that Satan would love to stamp out. He would love to crush it. He would love to hurt it. And that's, folks, that's what he's trying to do today. It's what he tried to do with Job. And Job's faith was strong. Listen, many times, and we'll, we'll close, many times we are whiners. We really are. And our faith seems so weak and so little frail and things. And I just think, Lord, strengthen my faith. I want to know, can I go, could I go through this? Could I go through this? And we whine over the littlest things and our faith seems to be so weak. Listen, if it's truly a faith that's from God, if the, our, true, our nature has been truly changed, it will hold up under the worst of circumstances. Just like Job's. 
Satan, boy, Satan had his heyday with Job, didn't he? And Job's faith was even stronger. A genuine faith from God, a genuine faith from God will hold. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, there's so much more that could be said about this passage. And Lord, we just kind of, we kind of go through it and glean what we can. I pray that we would meditate on these things. Think through this. Read these things again and contemplate them. You say, he who has an ear, let him hear. Lord, help us to have an ear. Help us to see your providential hand over our lives. Over the world condition as it is today. We don't like it. Sometimes we think it needs to be changed. And you see the, the world going in the wrong direction. But Lord, the key is just, Lord... Hang on to our faith. Help us, Lord. We know Satan will challenge. He will, he will do whatever he can do to crush that faith. But it's a supernatural faith. It's not even our faith. It's something that's given to us. And we thank you for that. And Lord, for the security of knowing, for the rest and the peace that it brings to our heart, knowing that Satan could do his best to us. But we will stand, Lord, if we're genuinely, truly yours. We will love truth, we will love righteousness, and we will be loyal to you. Lord, may we be those kinds of saints. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We thank you for your good attention. These are a lot of details, right? Hard to sift through this stuff. It's a big passage, a lot, a lot there, a lot to think about. The Lord has given us a lot of detail. And if we can help you in any way to help you think through these things or or deal with spiritual matters in your life, if salvation is what's necessary, if you've been rejecting the truth, if you want to hang on to your righteousness and you begin, or unrighteousness and you begin to see that, come to us. Let us pray with you. Let us talk with you about these things. That's why we're here. Even throughout the week, you can come and talk to me at any point. You can see our elders at any time. Come ahead, Tim. Let's close in praise. God from whom